Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Love and marriage. The institution itself is nearly as old as time. Without a doubt, it can be a beautiful thing. The idea of meeting that special someone is what most of us hope to find one day. Some of you may have been lucky enough to have found your soul's counterpart in this world already. Growing with one another, deciding to take that leap of faith, and conjoining as partners can be one of life's most joyous and remarkable privileges. A forever agreement, legally binding you to stick by each other's sides, through sickness and in health. Till death do you part, as the old saying goes. It's a pretty big commitment for any individual entirely entrusting someone with your heart, family, and finances. It's a choice that should always be given an appropriate amount of consideration. But hey, when you know, you know, right? But what happens when you thought you knew, but somewhere down the line, you found out that you were wrong? What happens when that someone you're with for years finally shows their true colors, only after you've entered into such a sacred, significant covenant with one another? We'd like to believe we all have an impeccable sense of judgment of character, but the truth is, sometimes we don't, and that's not necessarily to any fault of our own. You see, not only can people change, they do all the time, sometimes for better, but for others equally for worse. Even the most self-aware among us can be fooled. Though none of us expect our partners to deceive, keep secrets, or hell, even lead double lives. We're ultimately faced with the question at one point or another, do we ever truly know someone beyond whatever part of themselves they have given us? And can we ever truly take someone at face value? The concept that's even more difficult for most to grasp is that our chosen partner could have a propensity for violence that we've never seen before. We never think we'd be in such a predicament until we are, particularly those experiencing domestic abuse. Yet that's exactly the situation Melanie Lyon found herself in when her steps toward the altar shifted to full sprints to the hills. As she ran from an extremely rage-fueled individual she had mistakenly married long ago. Ronald Lee Haskell, a 33-year-old church-going man, had abused Melanie for years behind closed doors without anyone having the slightest clue. Once she finally gained the courage to get out, Ron wouldn't take the goodbye too kindly, to say the least. This master manipulator wouldn't draw any attention to himself until his wife finally escaped his vile wrath. But once she did, all hell broke loose, worse than she'd ever seen before. Ron Haskell decided that not only would his ex-wife have to pay for what he viewed as the ultimate betrayal, but so would anyone else for that matter who helped her to break free.
Ronald Lee Haskell Jr. was born August 26, 1980, in Escondido, California. When he was very young, the Haskell family moved to Eagle River, an area just outside of Anchorage, Alaska. Here, he would spend his formative years. Ron was a Boy Scout from a loving family and was like any other young man in his community. He attended Chugiak High School, where he played linebacker for the football team, was given the class clown superlative in his senior yearbook, and was even the prom king of his graduating class in 1999. He was an all-around likable guy with a good head on his shoulders, raised by a devout family, loyal to their beliefs in the Mormon LDS church. Why did they pick me to be class clown? I think it's because I'm so darn good looking. This was Haskell's yearbook quote next to his senior photo. Ron would end up traveling on various LDS missions, recruiting new members to the church that was so deeply rooted in his family's history. Sometime later, he would take a job with FedEx as an independent parcel delivery driver. During this time, he began dating a woman he had known as a friend since the second grade, Melanie K. Lyon. The two's romantic relationship would eventually evolve into marriage when they were pronounced husband and wife in March of 2002. In 2006, the newlyweds would decide to move to Smithfield, a town just outside of Logan, Utah, where they would begin building their new life together, as well as a brand new home which Ron helped construct himself. Things were going great for Ron and Melanie, at least at first. They became known rather quickly in their new town almost as soon as they arrived, continuing as practicing members of their Mormon faith, a belief which hadn't left them since their move from Alaska to Utah. Upon attending their new church, the couple would meet many like-minded friends. They were both quite amicable and well-liked in the community. Ron and Melanie would eventually have four children together and attended church services regularly as a family. But what their fellow Mormon brothers and sisters didn't see was a marriage that was rapidly deteriorating in private. Ron Haskell, though you would never know when speaking with him in a public setting, was extremely emotionally and physically abusive to his wife, Melanie. Things carried on this way in secrecy for years. In June of 2008, Ron was charged with suspicion of domestic violence and committing violence in front of their children. During the incident, Ron had dragged his wife out of the bed by her hair and onto the floor, where he proceeded to hit her over the head with his fist during an argument. Haskell told police that he had only pushed Melanie and never struck her. He would inevitably plead guilty to a simple assault charge and was found not guilty on the domestic violence charge after a plea deal had been reached. The police were called to the home several times in the years following, pertaining to reports of the same type of behavior. In July of 2013, Melanie decided she'd finally had enough. A protective order was filed against Ron Haskell and was served that very same day. And after 11 years of tumultuous abuse, Melanie had finally built up enough courage to leave Ron and filed for divorce in August of that year. In the end, that protective order would circumstantially be dropped, however, in October of 2013 when a mutual agreement between both parties was met. Haskell agreed to a restraining order, which would also give Melanie primary custody of their four children. Though Haskell would still be granted visitation rights, under strict supervision guidelines. To friends who knew him, the divorce marked a clear turning point for Ron. In the midst of the separation, Ron's brother had called the police, asking them to do a welfare check, 
as Ron hadn't returned any of his numerous phone calls. Immediately after crossing the T's and dotting the I's on the divorce papers, Ron noticed his now ex-wife high-fiving family members outside of the courthouse. As Melanie rejoiced in the legal finality and separation from her abuser, Ron's friends remembered this particular event, exacerbating the man's already defeated and melancholy demeanor, and Ron Haskell's general attitude towards life would only get worse from here. After he was divorced, Ron didn't know what to do with himself. He was completely lost. This is a direct quote from a longtime friend of Haskell's, Alan Weatherston. Alan owned a carpet cleaning business in the Smithfield area. He had met the Haskell family while attending church services together. Ron hired Alan to clean the floors of his newly constructed home in Utah, and the two quickly hit it off. Alan recalls attempting to cheer up his friend during this difficult time in his life by taking him to see Man of Steel, the latest Superman movie, which had just come out in theaters. Alan remembers in the weeks that followed, Ron was becoming visibly distraught and more and more despondent by the day. By this point, Melanie was already long gone, having taken off for Houston, Texas with the help of her sister Katie. Alan tried to keep in contact with Ron, but the two eventually lost touch. After a few months passed with no contact, Alan would learn from a neighbor that Haskell had left Utah for good, changing his phone number and moving to San Marcos, California, where his mother resided. To anyone other than his immediate family, Ron seemed to have just vanished. He left his entire life in Smithfield behind completely, but it wouldn't be long, however, before Ron Haskell's name would ring bells once again, as it was only a matter of time before he would reemerge. Only this time, it wouldn't be the same happy-go-lucky Ron Haskell everyone thought they once knew. After the divorce, Sister Katie Stay was finally successful in her attempt to get Melanie to safety and away from Ron. This is something she'd been trying to facilitate for years. Katie was one of the few people who truly knew the extent of Ron's abuse and feared that if her sister hadn't left, her life would be in grave danger. In early 2014, Melanie moved into her parents' home in Spring, Texas, while she readjusted and got back on her feet. Thankfully, she was now only a half hour away from Katie and her family's home in Harris County. With a much-needed fresh start, Melanie and her children were excited to begin rebuilding their lives together, without the man that had tortured them for years. With a near 1,500-mile separation between the two, Melanie finally felt safe for the first time in a long time. She was grateful to have the support of her parents, her loving sister, and her entire extended family. The Stays had a full house of their own, husband and wife, Stephen and Katie, along with their five children, Brian, Emily, Rebecca, Zachary, and Cassidy. The kids ranged in age from 3 to 14, Zachary being the youngest and Cassidy the eldest. At last, Melanie and her children had finally found some semblance of peace and essentially became one big family unit together with the Stay family.
Back in San Marcos, California, things weren't as happy. Ron Haskell was in and out of unemployment, living at his mother's house at the age of 34. In the beginning, family members did recall a period where Ron was showing signs of progress in regards to putting the pieces of his life back together. He'd been seeking mental health treatment, allegedly meeting with therapists and taking prescribed medications. But this progress would all be short-lived. Ron had lost everything. He couldn't bear the thought of starting over, and the resentment from learning from his ex-wife's ability to now seemingly carry on without him alongside their children. The realization soon manifested into great anger for Ron, and it wouldn't be long before that anger and frustration would be shifted towards others once his ex-wife wasn't around to take the brunt of his violent outbursts. While living with his mother, several incidents occurred where Ron's rage was on full display. One event in particular involved Ron's attempt to push his father down a flight of stairs inside of the home. Upon arriving at the residence from a cancer surgery procedure, an argument ensued. Ron proceeded to shove his father as he stumbled down a few steps. Luckily, the man in his 60s was able to catch his balance and remained unharmed. Ron's older brother, who witnessed the altercation, ran to his father's aid and proceeded to pick up Ron, body slamming him into the ground in order to restrain him. It was at this point that Ron's immediate family realized the severity of abuse his ex-wife Melanie must have endured, despite what he had been telling them following the divorce. This wasn't the last first-hand account of violence the Haskells would encounter, however. They began to realize that the man they thought they knew was a potential danger to anyone that happened to upset him. Ron would snap on a dime, a quality they'd never seen in him before. After a separate altercation, Ron's sister would file a restraining order against him herself. Ron had grabbed Chandra Haskell's throat, maniacally choking her before throwing her to the floor. During this attack, he then proceeded to charge his mother. His sister Chandra began punching Ron after getting back up to her feet, desperately trying to get the large, statured man off their mother, Carla. Luckily, no one was seriously injured during this incident either, aside from a few markings on Chandra's neck and bruising to their mother's knees. Carla did develop a slight difficulty in walking soon thereafter, however, most certainly a residual effect from what her son had done to her. The family tried their best to get help for Ron, as he was in and out of mental health facilities in hopes of controlling his anger. Despite proper care and now being prescribed and actively taking several different medications, Ron would only grow increasingly violent during the period in which he was living at his mother's house. But the worst was yet to come not only for the Haskell family, but an entirely separate family as well, only a few short months later. eleven AM Pacific Time, july second, twenty fourteen. Back at the Haskell family residence in San Marcos, California, Carla was engaging in a casual conversation with her son when the topic of discussion changed resulting in yet another violent eruption from the 34-year-old unemployed Ron Haskell. When Carla asked Ron if he had seen a bank check that belonged to his ex-wife Melanie, he lost it. Ron became suspicious, aggressively interrogating his mother on how she would have any knowledge of said bank check. After Carla confessed that she had spoken with Melanie and had been in recent contact with her, Ron became infuriated. An argument broke out, escalating into physical violence once more. He pushed his mother backward, 
as she fell from the chair she'd been sitting on. She begged her son to stop. Ron then grabbed his mother up from the floor, placing her back into the chair before he began choking her. Carla was defenseless against her son's brute strength. She was now going in and out of consciousness as Ron choked her, stopped for a moment, then allowed her to come to, only for her to awaken, vaguely remembering her son's evil glare, staring directly back at her. Ron then stated something to the effect of, I'm going to kill you and this entire family. Now fearing for her life, Carla had regained consciousness yet again, but this time noticed she was duct-taped to the chair, now restrained inside of the garage. Upon realizing her new surroundings, Carla recalls having lost control of her bowels as a result of the vicious attack at the hands of her own son. After two hours of cruel torture and verbal abuse, Ron finally fled the home at roughly 3 p.m., leaving his mother still strapped to her seat. When Carla's daughter Chandra arrived at home to find her mother tied up hours later, she quickly notified the police. Ron's mother would ultimately file a restraining order against her son, but the crazed, burly man was nowhere to be found. Ron Haskell never did return home after that. But where could he have gone, they wondered. Surely a man with no job, no apartment, and limited finances couldn't have gone far. Or at least, that's what they thought. On the morning of July 9th, 2014, roughly one week after Ron came within inches of choking his 61-year-old mother to death, leaving her helplessly tied to a chair in her own human waist, Haskell is seen exiting a Days Inn motel room. Security cameras then captured him on surveillance at a nearby Walmart, where he purchased various items. He was then seen at a Murphy's gas station filling his tank. On what appeared to be just another day of menial errands for Ron, he then decides to catch a movie, 22 Jump Street to be exact, at a nearby movie theater. What is odd about these events, aside from the fact that he'd almost killed his mother days before, was the location of where Ron was running these errands. See, Haskell wasn't caught on camera at Walmart or seen enjoying the hit new comedy starring Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum in San Marcos where he had been living. Instead, Ronald Lee Haskell was enjoying a matinee film alone, 1,500 miles away in Harris County, Texas. And these surveillance images wouldn't be recovered until it was far too late. Back in San Marcos, police were still searching for Haskell in regards to the assault he carried out on his mother the week before. Little did they know, just after the attack, Haskell had left the state, driving his vehicle cross-country, headed for the town where his ex-wife Melanie lived. After casually checking routine tasks off of his to-do list for that day, Ron would soon begin checking off lines from an entirely separate docket, an itemized list of specific addresses and names that he had brought with him all the way from California to Texas. Just after 5 p.m. that evening, a heavyset man standing over six feet tall knocked on the front door of 711 Leaflet Lane, a residential home in the quiet suburban neighborhood of Spring in Harris County, Texas. After a few more harsh bangs at the door, a young woman from inside would emerge. Upon answering, the adolescent girl with long blonde hair and reading glasses smiled back at the man but did not recognize the individual towering over her at the front entrance. 
Unbeknownst to the girl, this man did indeed recognize who she was. He realized then that he was at the correct address. The shadowy figure was wearing dark sunglasses and a black and purple FedEx delivery polo. He asked the girl if her parents were home, claiming that he needed them to sign for a package. She retorted back in a soft and friendly voice, something to the effect of, No, I'm sorry, they're not home. Without much of a response, the stranger with a balding scalp and unkept red beard turned to walk away. But just before the young girl could successfully recede back into the home, the man overpowered her, busting his way through the partially ajar door, aggressively forcing his way inside. The man quickly locked the door behind him and then brandished a 9mm Springfield Armory handgun. The girl, now in a state of both shock and terror, begged the man for mercy, asking what he wanted of her. He began screaming back, something to the effect of, Where are your parents? Where's your Aunt Melanie? Just then, it hit her. It was at this point that 15-year-old Cassidy Stay realized who she was locking eyes with. The man that had just broken his way into her family's home was her uncle, Ron Haskell. The man she hadn't seen in years, who she'd previously known as Uncle Ronnie, had disguised himself, wearing a work uniform from his former employer. He had come to seek revenge on the family that helped his ex-wife leave him after the ugly divorce. His sights were specifically set on Melanie as he demanded to know her whereabouts, but he also seemed to have a keen interest in the young girl's mother and his ex-wife's sister, Katie. Haskell then noticed that Cassidy wasn't the only person present inside of the home. With a quick scan of the house, the intruder quickly laid eyes on Cassidy's four siblings, four-year-old Zachary, seven-year-old Rebecca, nine-year-old Emily, and 13-year-old Brian. Please don't hurt us. Cassidy cried out, attempting to protect her brothers and sisters, whom she had been babysitting at the time while their parents were out shopping. Haskell became increasingly frustrated with Cassidy after she repeatedly told the man she wasn't sure where her parents were, nor her Aunt Melanie. He then ordered all five children to sit on the couch and demanded Cassidy hand over her cell phone to ensure she wouldn't be able to call the police. After gaining the passcode for the locked iPhone, he told the children not to move or else they would all be killed. Ron then allowed Cassidy to put a Netflix show on the living room television in order to keep the younger children quiet. She made sure to continuously state the children's names and ages aloud for Ron to hear, hoping that this would somehow prevent him from causing them any harm. Cassidy thought that if Ron realized just how young the children were, he might have just enough compassion to spare them of their lives. The man paid no mind to her attempted diversions. He focused his attention to the driveway, staring out the window, awaiting the arrival of her parents, Katie and Stephen Stay. He'd periodically look back at the children to make sure they hadn't moved, while aiming the gun in their direction. Just moments later, Katie and Stephen's vehicle pulled into the driveway, with no knowledge that their five children were being held at gunpoint inside. Ron hid behind the doorway, and once Katie and Stephen entered their residence, they were instantly met with the barrel of Haskell's 9mm handgun, now pointed directly at their heads. He demanded that the terrified couple sit next to the entire family on the couch. I've come to get my kids, Ron snarled at Katie and Stephen. Trembling in fear, the couple insisted they had no idea where Melanie was or where his children might be. 
Ron perceived this as another attempt by the Stay family, specifically Katie, to protect her sister, just as she had when she helped Melanie relocate away from Ron, from Utah to Texas. After not getting answers from the seven individuals sitting there on the couch, Haskell finally reached his boiling point. He ordered all of the Stay family members to lie face down on the living room floor, lining them up next to one another, side by side on their stomachs. After a couple more violent clamors from the man, aggressively demanding the family to tell him of his ex-wife's whereabouts, no progress was made in Ron's favor. They may have been telling the truth, but more than likely were not wavering, knowing this man's past and what he was capable of. Haskell then began tying the arms and legs of each family member behind their backs, restraining them with a ligature he had presumably brought with him for this exact purpose. As Katie noticed what he was doing, she jumped up and screamed, No! lunging toward him in a desperate attempt to save their lives. Before Katie could get to Haskell, he fired once. She stumbled back to the floor, falling over the arm of the long sofa. As the rest of the family lay crying on the ground, they begged for their lives. Cassidy placed her hands over her ears and screamed at the top of her lungs, while Ron continued to tie up the remaining family members. He then stood directly behind them, raised his weapon, and proceeded to shoot each of them in the back of the head, one by one, execution style. Fifteen-year-old Cassidy somehow managed to throw her arm up wildly toward the back of her head just as Ron discharged the round. And while she had been hit, she was still alive. The bullet only grazed her skull, her hand having altered the trajectory of the round just enough to impede the shot from killing her. Cassidy then heard the remaining rounds fire off into the bodies of her brothers, sisters, and father. At this moment, she claimed to hear a voice whispering into her ear, telling her to keep quiet. It's still uncertain if this was one of her family members warning Cassidy before they were shot, or if it was some sort of unexplained divine intervention sent to the 15-year-old girl. Regardless, Cassidy chose to abide by the voice's instructions and pretended to lay deceased on the carpet. Screams turned to a silence that was now deafening. No more cries, no more gunfire. During minutes that surely felt like days, Cassidy quietly prayed she'd make it out of the situation alive, but could only wait for her ex-uncle to leave the place she'd only ever known as a safe sanctuary. She was losing blood rapidly, but knew she needed to remain calm and as still as was humanly possible. Cassidy was convinced that if she moved even the slightest... Ron had another round of ammunition with her name on it and knew that he was ready and willing to finish her off. Once Haskell's footsteps were heard moving further away from and behind her and her family's bodies, she realized he had wandered off to somewhere else inside of the home. Anxiously, Cassidy used her peripheral vision just enough to see her father lying directly adjacent to her. He wasn't moving. She then noticed that Stephen had his arm around her younger brother Zach also laid motionless. Her father had shielded four-year-old Zachary from the gunfire, literally taking a bullet for his youngest son. But then she noticed Zach's small back retracting in and out. He was still breathing. Cassidy continued to play dead as she listened intently to her uncle's every movement throughout the house. Just then, she heard Ron make his way toward the front entrance, where he subsequently slammed the door before leaving. She remained stationary for a while longer, 
until she heard the ignition of a car start up outside. She continued to listen until she heard the vehicle eventually drive away. Once the noise of the car had finally dissipated into the distance, Cassidy jumped up, pressing her hand against the open wound to her head, only to find her entire family left in a pool of their own blood. She immediately grabbed her cell phone, which Ron had left behind, and with great physical and mental resilience, Cassidy proceeded to phone 911. It's unclear if Ron Haskell ever finished restraining Cassidy, or if she was somehow able to untie the ligature once he was gone. Regardless, Cassidy was alive, now frantically informing dispatchers that Ron Haskell wasn't finished yet. When constable deputies arrived, we were able to speak to one of the ladies that was shot actually in the head. She was verbally able to tell us who actually did the shooting. Uh, it was a relative uh, and that he was going to another location, uh, at a location in Ponderosa, to kill the rest of the family. Cassidy was able to relay to both the 911 operators and officers once they arrived on scene that they needed to act fast, as she believed her ex-uncle was likely headed towards her grandparents' house, where Melanie lived to kill all three of them next. Though no one in the Stay family ever gave this information up to Ron, he was indeed correct about his ex-wife's whereabouts and was now en route to complete his deadly plan once and for all, only a few short miles away. After Cassidy's valiant 911 call, Harris County Police split their resources immediately, dispatching units and emergency personnel to the Stay family home at 711 Leaflet Lane and any and all remaining resources toward the direction of Melanie Lyon's parents' home, who they believed were Haskell's next intended targets. Upon arriving at the gruesome scene at the Stay residence, Cassidy and her youngest brother, Zach, were both rushed to the hospital. Cassidy was listed in stable condition soon after being treated for a skull fracture and the flesh wound to her hand. Four-year-old Zachary, on the other hand, was in critical condition. Ron had just gunned down seven people, and was still at large. He was considered armed and dangerous, and likely on his way to shoot even more innocent victims. Somewhere along his route after just emptying several rounds of ammunition into the people he once called family, Ron Haskell reportedly made the bizarre stunt of pulling off into a local Sonic restaurant to grab a drink. Think about that for just one second. This man just finished shooting seven people in the back of the head, and then immediately after, purchased himself a cold beverage to quench his thirst. Perhaps Ron realized this would be the last chilled drink he'd ever be served outside of a maximum security penitentiary. Or perhaps this was simply an indication of his true lack of a conscience, a remorseless act by a man that can only be described as pure evil. After his pit stop, Ron proceeded back on his way to the Lyon family residence. By now, police had informed all known family members of the victims who were local to the Houston area. They urged anyone they thought to be in potential danger to seek refuge, as it was very possible Haskell could be paying them an unexpected visit at any moment. Among the family members notified was Melanie's other sister and Cassidy's aunt, Arielle Lyon. Arielle wasted no time and packed up her children, with no diapers or shoes on their feet, and fled her home. It wouldn't be long before local authorities were able to track down Haskell's vehicle. 
they were able to intercept the sedan soon after he left the Sonic drive-thru. Once Haskell noticed the red and blue cruiser lights appearing in his rearview mirror, a slow-speed chase ensued. After roughly 25 miles, during which spike strips were deployed, police would finally corner Haskell's vehicle along a cul-de-sac in a residential neighborhood. There was only one way in and one way out, and with nowhere to turn, Haskell was effectively cornered, with even more police reinforcements arriving. The area he had finally been trapped was only three miles from his next destination, Melanie and her parents' home. Police ordered Haskell out of the car, but he refused. He placed the 9mm handgun to his head several times, but never pulled the trigger. While he was most certainly contemplating taking his own life, Deputy Thomas Gilliland recalls Haskell's demeanor as, quote, cool as a cucumber. The officers engaged in conversation with the man attempting to convince him to surrender. The painstaking standoff would last a total of nearly two hours. Two armored sheriff's vehicles ultimately would wedge the suspect's car, one approaching from the front and one from the rear. After lifting all four of Haskell's wheels from the pavement, completely eliminating any possibility of an escape, he surrendered. The stalemate officially came to a close just after 7 p.m. on July 9, 2014, with no further incident. With Ronald D. Haskell now in custody, and after crime scene investigators meticulously assessed the carnage their suspect had left behind inside of the Stay family home, the outcome of this crime was far worse than anyone could have drawn up in their minds. As a result of his own failures as a husband, employee, and as a son and brother, along with his inability to cope with his poor excuse for life in general, Ron Haskell would selfishly decide the fate of six innocent individuals that dark summer's eve in 2014. The man everyone thought they knew, to at least some varying degree, would selfishly claim the lives of Stephen Stay, age 39, Katie Stay, age 33, 13-year-old Brian Stay, 9-year-old Emily Stay, 7-year-old Rebecca Stay, and 4-year-old Zachary Stay. Zachary would pass away at the hospital soon after his arrival. His father, Stephen, gave his own life by courageously attempting to protect his son as Haskell ruthlessly emptied his weapon into the small child. Katie gave her life as well, trying to defend her children, having been shot after attempting to disarm her estranged brother-in-law. The lone survivor of this incomprehensibly cowardice act of violence was 15-year-old Cassidy Stay. Had it not been for her immense strength, willpower, and ability to think quickly on her feet after being shot in the head, the number of casualties in this crime surely would have been at least seven. It's unimaginable to consider what it must have been like for this young woman, who was fully conscious and aware at the time of the murders, to witness her entire family being taken away from her, one by one, right before her eyes. She lay there on the floor pretending to be dead, somehow managing to refrain from making any sudden movements or sounds as Ron Haskell lined her family up in a firing squad type fashion, assassinating them one by one. Not only did Cassidy sustain a bullet to the back of her head and a fractured skull, but she would make an astonishing full recovery with no significant or permanent brain damage of any kind. It would later be verified that if Cassidy hadn't picked up the phone to call 911 while her loved ones all lay dead on her living room floor, Ron Haskell's death toll 
could have realistically ended up somewhere in the high teens or even possibly reaching more than 20 victims. Ronald Lee Haskell had planned this gruesome vendetta scrupulously. But before we get into the exact details of how exactly he carried out this plan of sheer brutality, we'd like to commemorate and honor those who lost their lives that day. We do so by hearing from those that knew them and loved the Stay family the most, their neighbors, friends, and remaining family members, as it seems most fitting that their story comes first. The Stay family was, a, was I like to refer to them as an anchor family. They're that family in the neighborhood where all the kids go to their house to play. Our families experienced a great loss at this because there's not a day that will go by where we won't somehow uh, miss them, some experience where we'll miss them. Cassidy's got a tough road ahead of her, but at the same time, she has a very strong support group with her family, with her church, and uh, her faith will sustain her. As we've seen so far, she's been amazing so far. Uh, you know, she's been in, uh, I don't know that I could hold up as well as she has. Stephen was very, you know, patient and quiet and happy, smiling all the time and just really mellow, kind of a peacemaker kind of guy. And Katie was a lot more talkative. She was also happy, you know, also very caring and loving, a little bit sarcastic, which I think a lot of people appreciated because, you know, it, uh, kind of lightens the mood. You know, she was, she was a great motivator. She was a great cheerleader. She loved to, to serve, as did Stephen. I mean, he just, they were always doing something for somebody else. Honorable, church-going, and hardworking people. The stays were loved by their entire congregation and local community as a whole. Katie and Stephen were known to give back to anyone in need. On one occasion, Katie helped an elderly woman weed her garden on her own accord and at no request of her fellow neighbor. We wanted to pay our respects and bring candles and we wrote on her candle, you know, that more, my daughter would always be her friend forever. They were just really nice and I mean, they didn't do anything to nobody. They were really friendly, very wonderful. I mean, they didn't deserve any of this. Nobody does. The Stay family was dedicated to their volunteer work and facilitated t-ball tournaments for special needs children. 13-year-old Brian loved being a Boy Scout. Emily, age 9, was the singer of the family. Hello Kitty was her favorite. Rebecca, or Beckaboo as her parents called her, was little Zachary's 7-year-old protector, always looking out for her little brother. And Zach, well, at only 4 years old, naturally, he loved superheroes. He liked to watch funny cat videos on YouTube with his sister Cassidy and father Stephen regularly. These memories, interests, and acts of kindness are only a glimpse into what a great family the Stays truly were. Four children that never had the chance to grow up, and a husband and wife who were stripped of growing old together. Anyone asked to describe the Stays almost always used the same adjective, loving. The extremely sad truth is that this very same love was shown to Melanie Lyon, Katie's sister, when the family helped her move and escape from the man who had abused her for over a decade. Tragically, that good deed would ultimately cost nearly every member of the family their lives. It's extremely difficult to articulate the enormity of such loss. A tragedy this awful just doesn't make any sense. Here are Stephen Stay's parents, Joyce and Tom Stay, after sitting down with a local news team following the tragic murder of their only son, their daughter-in-law, and their four grandchildren. 
This was a family. They, they were a close-knit family. Quite a thing that we don't, uh, we don't expect. Katie and Stephen loved each other totally. Just wonderful. I said I was so sorry, Cassidy, about everything that's happened, but I'm so thankful you're still here with us. But she said, well, my mom and dad are in a better place. And I said, I know that. And she will get through this. At 2 p.m. on a somber July afternoon, a funeral was held at the Hafer Road LDS Chapel in Houston, Texas. Six white caskets were carried from five black hearses into the overcrowded venue as more than 1,200 neighbors, family members, and friends shuffled through the doors, shoulder to shoulder, to say their goodbyes. Cassidy did not speak during the service, but sat front and center with tears rolling down her cheeks. The images taken from inside of the funeral ceremony are so profound, they're nearly too difficult to bear. With hardly enough space to fit all six coffins in the frame, the photos speak volumes, begging the question of how and why such a senseless tragedy is even possible. In order to understand why, we have to go back and examine Ronald Lee Haskell's sick plan, a plan that when looking at all of the evidence, perhaps could have been avoided long before it was ever set into motion. Here's a complete breakdown of each step Haskell took leading up to July 9th, the eve of the murders. Following the incident on July 2nd, when he assaulted and tied his mother to a chair just a week before the shooting, Ron Haskell fled from California to Utah. After a 12-hour drive, he arrived in Utah on July 4th. Once there, he would break into the home of a woman he once dated briefly during the separation of his ex-wife. It was there Haskell would steal a 9mm handgun from the woman's home. After illegally procuring the firearm, he then purchased a large quantity of ammunition earplugs, an additional magazine, and a laser scope for the gun that same day. By late evening, Ron arrived in Las Vegas, where he would treat himself to a steak dinner and a luxurious hotel room. July 5th, 2014, just four days before the murders, Ron arrives in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he would stay at a La Quinta Inn and Suites hotel. The next day, he drove from Albuquerque to Amarillo, Texas. From there, he was on his way to his final destination, spending two nights at a Days Inn on July 7th and 8th, just outside of Houston. He would then make his trip to Walmart, fill up his gas tank, and catch a quick comedy flick at a local movie theater, before driving the short distance to execute the Stay family in cold blood. This timeline is important not only to show the methodical planning and extensive amount of time Ron Haskell had the week leading up to the murders, solidifying a premeditated motive, but it's also significant when analyzing the missteps taken by police back in San Marcos, California. Let's backtrack. On July 2nd, Ron duct taped his mother Carla to a chair in the garage, fleeing the home at roughly 3 p.m. Carla's daughter wouldn't come home to find her mother until 5 p.m. that evening. The 911 call went out at approximately 5.14 p.m and police were subsequently dispatched to the residence at approximately 5.19. But for some unknown reason, no one arrived on scene at the property until almost three hours later, at exactly 8.08 p.m. This would have given Haskell a whopping five-hour head start to flee the state and begin his trek to an eventual deadly rampage. 
Criminal defense attorney Anthony Colombo gave local reporters his insight as to why this delay may have occurred. It was several hours after the assailant had left. And one of the first questions that 911 would ask and then relay to the police is whether or not the individual is facing imminent threat or imminent harm. With this logic, it's possible that when the 911 call went out from Haskell's mother's home, she and or her daughter had not expressed to the operator that Ron was of any further threat at the time of this incident. However, this seems highly unlikely. Given the nature of the attack, the idea that Ron's family was protecting him from a potential arrest seems far-fetched at best. If this was indeed the case, why would a 911 call be made in the first place? Ron's mother also filed a restraining order against her son immediately following this incident. Even if a sense of urgency hadn't been expressed, why then would it still take police three hours to show up for any call? Local authorities refused to comment after these facts came to light, claiming that they were unable to reveal any further information during the active investigation into the Stay family murders. We'll most likely never know why it took them so long to arrive at Ron's mother's house. But had they gotten there sooner, they quite possibly could have intervened before Haskell fled the scene to Texas. It's uncertain, but without such a significant delay in arriving on scene that day, Stephen, Katie, Brian, Emily, Rebecca, and four-year-old Zachary might well still be alive. Well, the jury has been selected and his trial begins tomorrow at 9 a.m. Investigators say the horrific murders all began when Haskell went searching for his ex-wife, who had apparently left him after several instances of domestic violence. July 11, 2014. 34-year-old Ronald Lee Haskell made his first appearance in court, facing six counts of capital murder. This trial would see its first setback of many, immediately following the opening arguments when Haskell fainted twice and collapsed in the courtroom. His face, he was obviously lost blood in his face and his, his knees buckled. And I, he was scared. I think he has a limited uh, mental capacity to understand what's going on. It's, it's a terrible tragedy, but the question is, is, is he legally responsible uh, from a criminal standpoint? And on, on a second level in a capital murder, ca murder case, uh, mitigation in terms of mental health is also a component in terms of whether a jury ultimately sentences an individual who may or may not be found guilty of capital murder. That's Haskell's attorney, Doug Durham, following the theatrics displayed from his client after he'd fallen to the ground while outfitted in a county jail orange jumpsuit and shackles. Once court was adjourned, the defense briefly expressed to the media their intention to move forward with a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Harris County Assistant District Attorney Tammy Thomas was not amused one bit and gave her thoughts on the case that lay before her. Obviously, this is uh, the real thing here. We're not uh, acting, we're not playing, we're not uh, kidding around. It makes no difference to me whether he ever fully understands how much trouble he's in or not. I'm gonna let a jury tell him how much trouble he's in. Legal proceedings would be dragged through the courts for years, as the remaining members of the extended stay family and supporters were forced to await justice for their loved ones, time and time again. Several legal quandaries arose, questioning if Haskell was mentally fit and competent to stand trial. While he was being held without bond, Haskell was evaluated, and after many, quote, informal status conferences at the request of his attorneys, Ron would inevitably be hauled back into the courtroom after a judge's final ruling. He was finally deemed competent to stand trial. 
The defense claimed that Haskell suffered from a clinical narcissism disorder and that he was, quote, hearing voices at the time of the killings. His lawyers attempted to use their client's lack of remorse as proof that he didn't understand the gravity of his actions that day. On the contrary, the prosecution would use this same fact to their advantage by providing evidence from various jailhouse phone calls made by Ron Haskell, where he was recorded stating, quote, I don't feel guilty. I can't feel guilty. Compounded with the vast amount of evidence already stacked up against him, prosecutors made it a point to harp on the great deal of planning the accused had taken to successfully carry out his sinister attack. A hit list of Ron's would be admitted into evidence, discovered by police after they obtained a search warrant. The list provided several names and addresses of additional intended targets, aside from the stays, Melanie, and her immediate family. This new evidence only drove home the notion even more conclusively to the jury that this crime had the potential to have been much, much worse. Ron Haskell's handwritten note was detrimental to his defense's case. This physical evidence proved that he knew exactly what he was doing when he took the lives of six innocent people that day and demonstrated that he was merely unsuccessful in killing more. It would take nearly five years from the day of the murders for justice to finally be served in this case. On October 11, 2019, both sides would be given the opportunity to provide their final statements. We brought you witness after witness in every stage of his life and every part of his life to show you what kind of person this defendant is. And now you know, he's a manipulator, he's a liar, he won't change, and quite frankly, he doesn't want to change. Katie, Stephen, Cassidy, Brian, Emily, Rebecca, Zach. Throughout the trial, the objective of prosecutors Tammy Thomas and Samantha Necht was not solely to establish guilt, as it was quite evident who was responsible for the murders. Their ultimate goal was a death penalty sentence. During her impactful closing arguments, Necht is shown removing seven bullets from her blazer, naming off each deceased victim, as well as the sole survivor, Cassidy, while placing each 9mm round on the table for all of the jurors to see. One would think this type of dramatic visualization would be the proverbial nail in Ron Haskell's coffin in regards to his eventual conviction and sentencing, but she wasn't finished yet. She continued by placing additional bullets, representing Haskell's other intended targets that day, the people that quite surely would have been killed had police not stopped him in time. But the plan is not complete. Kelly, Roger, Melanie, Jared, Mary, Lydia, Jacob, Ari, Noki, Drew, Arlena, Adeline, Kyle, Aubrey, McKenna, Brock, Alex, Emma, Ethan, Neil, Kate, if not this, then what? Over 20 bullets were put on display for the jury to see. Ron Haskell never spoke during any points of his trial. Not once did he show any trace of emotion. The only gesture made was one quick wink directed at an unidentified individual in the courtroom 
presumed to either be his mother or father, just before his final sentencing. It's a curious thought to wonder if his eye will ever twitch in a similar manner once a lethal dose of potassium chloride is inevitably injected into his veins. But before Judge Powell would declare if Ron Haskell would ever be sentenced to death, victim impact statements were read aloud, the most powerful having been delivered by the one girl that somehow made it out alive that day, now 20-year-old Cassidy Stay. For the past five years, I've always wanted to know how you felt about me and what kind of remorse you felt. And my family always said that you only felt sorry for yourself. And I didn't want to believe that because I thought, surely he has to feel bad for killing my family. And when I heard that you felt no remorse, something changed inside of me. And I didn't know what to do with that change. And it was causing me a lot of hurt and anger because that was my closure. My closure was the hope that you would feel bad. I no longer have the desire for any closure because this is it. There's nothing left on this earth that will soothe my wounds and worries. Only God can help me now. And that's what I've decided to do with my resentment and my anger towards you. I'm letting go of my emotions and I'm giving it to God because he'll take care of me and he'll help me through this. I hope that when you die, you will get the punishment you deserve from God. Only God can help you now. Are you going to feel remorse one day? I don't know. And I want to tell you that I don't care anymore. I'm going to continue to live my life with happiness and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to forget about this. And I'm going to forget about you. You've been in control long enough and now your game is up. You're not in control anymore. You've lost and this is it for you. God will be there for you when you need him. And that time is going to come quickly for you, whether you like it or not. After Cassidy stared down the man that murdered her entire family, after five long years since the tragedy took place, the verdict was finally read aloud. Mr. Haskell, please stand to receive the verdict. Ronald D. Haskell, uh, the jury having found you guilty of the capital murder of Stephen Stay and Katie Stay and having returned a unanimous affirmative verdict to issue number one and a unanimous negative verdict to issue number two, the court sentences you to death by lethal injection. Ronald Lee Haskell was found guilty on all six counts of capital murder and was subsequently sentenced to death by lethal injection. He's currently awaiting his execution on death row at the Allen B. Polunsky Unit in Livingston, Texas. A public memorial and celebration for the Stay family would eventually be held. Cassidy's grandfather took to the podium to commend his granddaughter's heroic efforts that day, thanking her for potentially saving his life. Without her courage and quick thinking, we might be mourning the deaths of 20, yes, I said 20, people today, including myself, Cassidy would speak next. Her spirit and aura of general positivity is nothing short of magnificent. This young woman's ability to overcome such a great adolescent trauma is truly inspiring. Here she is commemorating the lives of her parents, brothers, and sisters. I'm really thankful for all of the people that have been praying for me and keeping me and my family in their thoughts. 
I would like to thank all of the first responders, nurses and doctors that have taken care of me. Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times. If one only remembers to turn on the light. I know that my mom, dad, Brian, Emily, Becca, and Zach are in a much better place and that I'll be able to see them again one day. Thank you all for coming and showing your support for me and my family. Stay strong. Seven long years after this tragedy occurred, at the time of creating this episode, we're happy to report that according to all reputable sources, now 22-year-old Cassidy Stay is flourishing. We reached out for comment from Cassidy directly, but did not receive a response back, either an intentional choice or a missed connection that we wholeheartedly respect either way. Only from our research were we able to learn that Cassidy is now happily married as of last year in 2020. You may have recognized her quote stated in the previous audio clip during her family's memorial service. If you've ever read the series of Harry Potter books, you may have noticed the subtle homage to Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, when Cassidy states, quote, Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers to turn on the light. Someone else happened to catch wind of Cassidy's reference to the famous fantasy novels as well. A little someone by the name of J.K. Rowling the renowned author behind the adored Wizard Chronicles classics. It's been said that after hearing Cassidy's story and having been impressed by her ability to find optimism amidst great loss with the help of her books, Rowlings had written her a personalized letter from the character Dumbledore's perspective, whom she'd quoted during the ceremony. The note was handwritten by Rowling herself in purple ink. The package also contained a wand, an acceptance letter to the magical boarding school Hogwarts, along with a school supply list and a copy of Rowling's third installment of the books, The Prisoner of Azkaban. The book was also autographed on the inside cover. It wouldn't be long before Cassidy's story was heard around the globe, and a GoFundMe was created in her name to benefit the loss of her six family members. Supporters from far and wide came together online, donating a total of just over $400,000, which far exceeded their original $300,000 goal. The crowdfunding campaign has since been closed. Melanie Lyon, Haskell's ex-wife, has never spoken publicly about the murder of her family. Given the horrifying nature of what happened, it's easy to see why she would avoid reliving these events by any means necessary. The only statement given to the press as it pertains to how Melanie is holding up was from her former divorce attorney, Al Barker. Barker had gone on record stating that he attempted to reach out to Melanie sometime after the murders to offer his personal condolences. She didn't answer, but Melanie's mother did pick up the phone, a woman who was also a potential target that day. She told Al that Melanie was still in a state of shock and that she'd expressed to her mother that she feels she has paid the ultimate price for her own freedom. The burden that must weigh on Melanie Lyon's shoulders is unfathomable. We just hope that wherever she is, she has started to heal, and that she has found some sort of peace, knowing that Ron Haskell will never be a threat to her or her children ever again. 
While Melanie has lost her sister and far too many of her loved ones, we hope she comes to know that in our heart of hearts, none of what happened on July 9th, 2014 was in any way, shape, or form a fault of her own. While we do know the motive behind this unconscionable crime, we may never grasp how an individual could actually follow through with these types of atrocities. We'll probably never know all of the identities who those extra bullets were meant for, but perhaps that's for the best. The only thing we can really do as a community of people is to ask questions and attempt to examine the root behind crimes such as these. The question you may have of your own is, why? What's the point? Some may say there isn't one. We choose to tell these accounts so the victims are not forgotten, so their stories can live on as their physical form tragically cannot. But it's also for another reason as well. We immerse ourselves into the depths of these crimes here at Invisible Choir, selfishly in a sense, as an act of preservation. If we cannot learn from the past, well, then there really is no point, is there? But if we can help identify even the slightest warning signs or other characteristics, traits, or patterns exhibited by these types of violent offenders, perhaps there is a chance we can keep ourselves a bit more safe. As part of these true crime dissertations, we try to speak with those who knew the victims or the offenders whenever we get the chance. We believe that conversing with the ones who knew these people personally can help us gain a deeper insight that can't be learned from a simple Google search or newspaper headline. That's why we were grateful to have had the opportunity to speak with Drew Nevitt, a man who not only knew Ron Haskell, but actually looked up to him as a role model of sorts during his youth. I grew up in Eagle River in Alaska, and I went to the same congregation as Ron Haskell. When I was about 26, 27, I, I found out that he had murdered his ex-wife's family. We thought Drew might be able to help us shed some light on how a person like Ron Haskell could so drastically devolve, regress, and change from a class clown to a mass murderer who now sits on death row. He explains how he first met Ron as a Boy Scout in the Mormon Church. Ron Haskell was Drew's scout leader at the time. He explains that his personality was not of a man you'd ever expect to commit such a heinous string of murders many years later. We all grew up Mormon. I'm no longer a member. But yeah, that's how we know each other. I would often see his parents speak or him speak. One thing that traditionally happens with youth speakers, especially missionaries, is they give like a farewell talk. They, they talk about what they anticipate the mission to be in. And so a mission is a massive deal in uh, the Mormon faith. It's, it's a rite of passage for males. I saw his farewell talk, but he was always laughing, always having a good time. Drew goes on to tell us that Ron actually dated two of his sisters in high school. He recalls a time where Ron had arrived at the family home to take one of Drew's sisters on a date, an experience that, looking back, must be quite eerie for Drew. He tells us, however, there was no inclination of knowing that Ron Haskell would eventually live a life of abusing women in his future, abuse that would eventually escalate to murder. One uh, memory that I have of Ron is he was like dropping off my sister from a date or maybe he was like picking her up and like he was at the front door. I opened the door and there he was. He's standing on the porch and Ron is just being pleasant and like laughing. He just had this Chris Farley like 
jolliness to him, really pleasant. And he could always make any, anyone laugh and just like an infectious laugh, making jokes and making me feel good about myself. And, you know, I was just like a 10, 12 year old kid. And yeah, he, he, he made you feel good to, to be around him. I looked up to him a lot. Certainly, Drew had no way of knowing as an impressionable adolescent what this man standing in his doorway would end up doing roughly 20 years later. How could Drew have known that when this older guy he looked up to turns 34, that he'd be standing in a similar doorway, staring down a girl that wasn't even born yet, Cassidy Stay, before breaking and entering her home and brutally killing six of her family members? This again begs the question at the beginning of the episode, how could anyone have known? Were there any warning signs in the case of Ronald Lee Haskell? Well, the one thing Drew would let us in on that does raise some eyebrows was, in his opinion, the mistreatment of women that occurred within the Mormon church and behind closed doors. We must stress that the opinions shared here are those of the speaker. Drew Nevitt, as someone who has grown up in the LDS church, expresses his ideas on how these veneers and wholesome exteriors are often exhibited and how the parallel of control might possibly draw a direct correlation back to Ron Haskell's personal life. In Mormonism, like being a man is a massive thing, and coming of age is a massive thing. The church is very misogynistic, very patriarchal, and it is unfair. Wives promise to obey their husbands and take all counsel from them, whereas men will promise them to follow God. Women promise to follow their husbands. And so he probably felt ownership. Drew also recalls seeing Ron's parents in church, leaving us wondering if something terrible were potentially going on behind closed doors in the Haskell family home, something which might in some way help to explain just how Ron came to be the type of person that he eventually did in adulthood. I'll say the, the mom and dad, like, they, they just looked so sad. They were always smiling. They were always happy. It looked like she had, she had been frowning her entire life and just sat her entire life, except for when she was at church. She, she always put on a really happy face. That's probably because there was a lot of, I'm guessing, a lot of emotional or verbal abuse. I don't know if any physical abuse happened in the household. Like, you're going to have to verify that with somebody else. After headlines broke of the Stay murders, the common narrative portrayed in the media was that Ron was a great person growing up and that the news came as a total shock to everyone and anyone that knew him. While this was certainly true in many people's experiences, Drew Nevitt being one of them, we were able to speak with another individual who saw a very different side of Ron Haskell. I was born in Alaska, moved away for a little bit, but we moved back when I was about 11 years old, and I lived there till I was about 27. He's chosen to withhold his real name, a request that we will always honor for the safety and general anonymity of our guests. For all intents and purposes, we'll call him Sean. I knew the Haskell family. They were in my ward or congregation in the Mormon church and lived what you would consider like a city block away from me, right up the street. I was kind of a weird kid. Uh, people didn't know who I was, and I kind of had long hair. I had just moved from upstate New York. I made quick friends with some people, and then I remember the Haskells were just kind of, they were the funny guys. I wouldn't describe them as class clowns. I actually found them to be kind of obnoxious and, and bullies. Sean and Drew were both friends, and still are. 
having met each other through the LDS Church as young Boy Scouts. Sean tells us a unique experience, quite different from Drew's, where Ron had singled him out during a camping trip, picking on him, and even notifying his father following the incident. Ron was one of my scout leaders. We went on a camp out. I got home from the camp out and we backpacked in somewhere like a mile and a half. We got home from the camp out and all of a sudden my dad wanted to have like this stern conversation with me because Ron had gone like straight to my dad and basically tattled on me as one of the scout leaders because I guess I was misbehaved while on the camp out, which I don't know what I did wrong or why, why he thought I was misbehaved. But like my dad was like not pleased with me. At this point, like people looked up to Ron because Ron had graduated. He was the homecoming king. Um, people did look up to the Haskells in a way that I never did personally. Always getting razzed, always getting uh, cajoled and, and just kind of poked fun at whenever I I felt like I was around the Haskells. Sean explains that it wasn't just Ron who bullied him, but also Ron's two brothers. He told us that he's been wanting to tell his story for years and admits that the opportunity to relieve his burden here with Invisible Choir has helped him cope with this horrible tragedy. He wanted people to know who the real Ron Haskell was. When everything went down with Ron, I was really upset and I called... The uh, it changed from the Anchorage Daily News to, I think, the Alaska Dispatch, something or other. I called him and I said, hey, you know, I have a different take on what everyone is saying, because it was one of those like typical things when something like this goes down is, oh, we're so shocked. This is such a tragedy. We would have never expected. Well, yeah, I would have never expected that he would do that. But like I was messed up in the head because people people were just describing him as being this you know, funny, goofball, you know, jovial, whatever. And I I didn't have that experience. Sean had been approached by several news outlets in Alaska immediately following the crimes. When he responded to the numerous publications stating that he was willing to tell his story, but preferred to remain anonymous, all had retracted their request for comment with no further interest in speaking with him. The Alaska Dispatch wanted me to name myself, and I said, well, I'm just not willing to do that. So, so I didn't end up giving my version of events, even though I, I, was, I would probably have been the most close source to them that they would have had had I spoken to them. He dated my sister for a while. They went on a couple of dates. That was another thing I remember when it happened. My sister and I spoke together and were like, she was like, whoa, I, went, I mean, I dated this guy. And I, know, I was like, yeah, I know that's pretty wild, isn't it? And I'm dating this girl living in Tacoma, Washington. And then I see on the news the story about Ron Haskell and, you know, his picture. And I'm like, no way that, that can't, it can't be, it can't be, especially because the story is ho- so horrific. You know what I mean? Some switch just flipped that made him strange. I just couldn't believe it. And I I called one of my best buddies and he and I just talked for like 30 minutes and we were just in complete disbelief. And then I talked to Drew on the phone about it. My girlfriend, uh, who ended up being my wife, who's now my ex-wife, she came home and I couldn't even like describe to her in words just how surreal and absurd and strange it was to find, you know, to hear about like something like that. It's almost like hearing that a a mass shooter was someone that you knew. That's kind of what it felt like.
the debate over whether the death penalty is inhumane and should be abolished altogether in the United States is one for the ages. In a case like this, it's hard to conjure up what an adequate penalty for a crime of this scale would even look like. Even the most imaginative would be hard-pressed to find one because, frankly, there is no worse act a human being can commit. What Ron Haskell did was barbaric, and whichever side of the coin you're on in regards to a stance on capital punishment, there's surely one thing most of us could agree on. Any individual who can raise a gun and place the barrel to the back of a four-year-old child's head and pull the trigger and then subsequently drive through a sonic fast food restaurant and order a Slurpee immediately following has absolutely no place in our society whatsoever. That individual deserves the maximum possible sentence allowable by law, and that's exactly what Ronald Lee Haskell would get. His execution date is still pending, and like Cassidy said in her victim impact statement, only God can help him now. And that time will eventually come quickly for old Uncle Ronnie, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> 